Good evening, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Miro, New York Historical's president and CEO, and it really is a great pleasure for me to see so many of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium this evening. Among our exhibitions now on view is the very powerful Anti-Semitism 1919 to 1939, which chronicles the gradual normalization of anti-Semitism during the period. I know you'll want to return during regular museum hours. The exhibition is on view through July. Tonight's program, America, Israel, and the International Water Crisis, is a part of our Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series, which is the heart of our public programs. As always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his great support, which has enabled us to bring so many fine historians and writers to this auditorium. I'd also like to thank and recognize the chair of New York Historical's Board of Trustees, who is with us this evening, Pam Schaffler, and I'd like to thank Pam for all the wonderful work she does on behalf of this great institution. It is also my pleasure now to say a few words of introduction regarding another trustee, Roger Hertog, who is the chair of our executive committee, and our chairman emeritus, who is our moderator this evening. Roger Hertog is the president of the Hertog Foundation and the chairman of the Tikva Fund. He's a founding partner of the investment research and management firm Sanford C. Bernstein and & Company, and he served as the firm's president. Mr. Hertog has also served on the boards of the American Enterprise Institute, the New York Philharmonic, the New York Public Library, the Thomas Jefferson Foundations, and the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. As I've said, Roger Hertog is Chairman Emeritus of our Board of Trustees, and it was under his exemplary leadership that we completed our spectacular renovation, including this beautiful auditorium, in 2011. Now, as I invite our speakers to the stage, I'd like to ask you to please make sure that anything that makes a noise like a cell phone is switched off. Roger will interview or sorry, will introduce and interview our speaker tonight, Seth Siegel. So Roger, Seth, let me invite you to the stage. Okay, I think we should have a really interesting evening tonight. <clears throat> and it's my privilege um, this evening to engage in a conversation with Seth Siegel. He's the guy to the right. <laughs> um, the author of what I think will really be seen over the next many years as a truly important book that's recently been pub published. It's called Let There Be Water, Israel's Solution for a water-starved world. This is the first book by this intriguing fellow whose, whose friends call him Yassi. A graduate of Cornell University, as well as Cornell Law School, he's pursued wide variety of interests throughout his professional life with considerable achievements in a number of those areas. After serving as a New York assistant district attorney, he launched a trademark brand extension agency called Beanstalk. We can ask him why he called it Beanstalk. I don't think it has much to do with water. But it is a, it is a clever name, which became extraordinarily successful and was ultimately bought by the Ford Motor Company. He developed an enviable list of clients, including the companies of stature like Coca-Cola and a wide variety of prominent celebrities. If that wasn't enough, Seth has even produced Broadway shows, including the Tony Award-nominated 2002 revival of The Man of La Mancha. In addition to the business world, Seth is one of those guys who is a deeply public-spirited fellow. He's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and has a long-standing interest in Israel and the American Jewish community, having served on the board of APAC and the Heschel School in Manhattan. 
Spend five minutes with Seth, and you'll hear an informed conversation on any number of important public, public policy issues. Let There Be Water, the book we're here to discuss this evening, has gotten rave reviews. You can go online and see it, and better, I think you can buy it in our bookstore, and Seth will even sign it for you. But it's gotten rave reviews and has been effusively, that's probably the right word, fair word, recommended by the likes of Michael Bloomberg, Tony Blair, Shimon Peres, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Not surprisingly, the book has been on the New York Times bestseller list. Seth, who looks pretty good tonight, <laughs> has spoken in the last six months in about 46 cities, on 20 college campuses, and in all, and, in, and has speaking engagements that have numbered 148. So Seth, welcome to the New York Historical Society and to your 149th talk. You and I will spend about an hour, half, 45 minutes together, then we'll open it up for Q&A. So with that, thank you so much. This is Broadway. You're, you're accustomed to this. I'm ready, Man baby. full of mantra. I'm, I'm ready, baby. Yeah. Impossible dream. I'm ready to belt out that song. <laughs> wait, wait a little bit. Wait a little bit. Okay. <laughs> Rachel says you should probably wait. Okay, so this is Seth Siegel's first book. In the acknowledgement sections, you note that you've interviewed 220 people in the course of researching it. I was interested. Which came first, your interest in, the, in global water shortage or Israel's solution to that water shortage? Uh, I'll be glad to answer that. I want to first, though, thank you for that extraordinary introduction. I have done a bunch of these, and that would be the absolute most remarkable one of all. Thank you very much. And if, and if I can just possibly um, not return the favor, but simply say that as an Upper West Sider who has seen this institution in worse days and now in much better days, I'm reminded of uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who said that institutions are the length and shadows of an individual. And although there's a board and lots of people who did it with you, that you were seminally involved in this. So I really want to thank you for all you've done for our neighborhood. Thank you. <laughs> Louise will speak to you about an endowment campaign <laughs> we're about to put. You know, I think we should keep going for a few hours. <laughs> So the, to your question, um, what happened was it was really an accident. Um, I am, as you, heard, as you mentioned, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. And about, about four plus years ago, I happened to, I, I like to go every month to two or three seminars and stuff I know nothing about, just to sort of like when you're flipping through a magazine, you find an interesting article, you start reading it. So I just went to a seminar and it was, it was given by a retired US Air Force general who is now a senior US intelligence official and he shared a just declassified US government report that said that by the year 2025, which then seemed like pretty far away, he said that by the year 2025, 60% of the world's landmass would find itself with water scarcity problems and, and that it would have all kinds of consequences for food security, for food prices, for the US defense architecture, and so forth. And I, and I said to myself, how do I not know any about this? about any of this. I went back to my office, I started reading about it, and I started thinking, what are some solutions here? I had no thought of writing a book. And then I discovered everywhere I turned, every story I, I read, there was an Israeli solution to the problem. And I found it, I've been to Israel many times, I found it very curious. Israel's a dry place, 60% desert. How possibly did they do this? And the more I read, the more amazed I was. And I started sharing with friends. And everyone said, that can't be true. And then I realized, maybe there's a book on this. I went looking for a book. There was no book. And sort of like that guy with the Remington Shavers, I decided to buy the company and write the book. <laughs> So when you went to Israel all of those times, you never found or you never met with anyone who told you about what Israel had accomplished in nope. terms of the desert? No one, blue? no one. My trips to Israel fell into basically two types. The types where I went with my wife, who speaks fluent Hebrew, to visit her Israeli relatives, and I speak uh, Ulpan, you know, language course level one, 
and I would mostly sit there with a frozen jet lag smile on my face, nodding like I understood what was going on. Every so often they would drop an English word, and so those were those kind of meetings. And then I would go and I'd meet with Israeli, either public officials or security officials. I had no idea about the water story. It was none. In fact, if anything, I was still of the mindset that maybe some of you have been to Israel had, which was that the Sea of Galilee, the Kinneret was rising and falling and it worried everybody or that they were importing water from Turkey and stories like that. None of that story is not true, it turns out. But, but I had thought that those were true stories and I thought Israel was actually in distress. So no, I, I had no idea. It was, so, so I was sort of my own focus group. It was like, wow, I'm so amazed by this. Well, others would be amazed too. And I thought I knew a lot about Israel and I didn't know this part. But more importantly than about Israel alone, as I realized if this general, this uh, intelligence officer is correct, <clears throat> that we're going into a global water crisis, then all the more so, it's a fascinating story because number one, on the one hand, there's a solution to the world's problems. We have an answer. It's not just, you know, sometimes you read these environmental books or population books, you finish them, you just want to commit suicide, you know, because otherwise in three months you're going to be eating your next to neighbor's children or something like that. You know, so, so, so my attitude was, this is a great story, it's a solution for the world. But on the other hand, I also thought, you know, for those of us who occasionally like to hear a positive story about Israel, I thought it might actually be nice to tell a positive story about Israel too. So just give us some sense of this, these 220 people. This is a lot of people. There are that many that know that much about water. Well, water is a vast subject. It is a vast sea. And the 220 people fell into, um, 190 of them were Israelis, 20 of them were Palestinians. And I, I don't know if we're going to talk about the Palestinians or not tonight, but I wasn't sure until the very end if I was going to include a chapter on the Palestinians or not. I ended up doing that. And then about 10 of them were U.S. government officials and heads of NGOs. And of the, of the people I interviewed, some of them are academics, some of them are government officials, some of them are, are water engineers, and they fall into... Of business people, they fall into lots of different categories. To really master water and to understand desalination and drip irrigation and seed breeding and all the pieces that make all the pieces that make Israel the water marvel, the water superpower that it is, I felt that I really needed to to speak to these people. I ended up doing over 500 interviews in all because the 220 people, some of them were kind enough to let me go back at them again and again. It's amazing. So. I also read some books, by the way, and reports, you know, but, I hope but, it, but, a lot, but a lot of this, you're right, was a lot of people sort of helping to educate me. And I, and I think I may have said this in the, in the, uh, in the uh, uh, acknowledgments, which is that to some extent, I am just sort of the vessel through which I synthesized what all these people told me. And I was able to share with, with, you know, with others what they, they told me. But, you know, lots of subject matter experts coming together with one sort of more generalized liberal arts introduction to the subject matter. I, I should point out, you know, when you... If you buy the book, it reads like he talks. It's a, no, I, and that's a compliment. It's a book that you can actually, you quickly get into. You have, you feel you have a relationship with the author. And that's a, that's a very rare gift. Could I, by the way, can I just say, one of the other things, a number of the people I wrote about in the book are long dead. And I don't mean Moses striking the rock and, you know, water coming out. <laughs> I mean, like, more contemporary figures. And it was really quite a, quite a joy to be able to sort of do the mystery detective story of finding out their life stories, maybe sometimes getting family members to share stories, sometimes getting diaries from family members, and piecing together, because you know, when you see an invention, when you see a society that comes together in water, you know, it didn't all come together with a holy form, holy form peace. And, and it was lots of fits and starts and lots of frustrations along the way. And it was, it was really very, very exciting for me to kind of get to know, although they're dead, get to know these people who played such an integral part in making the story what it was. Now, central to Israel, which is sort of remarkable when you think about it, you know, this tiny country, seven or eight million people, and it is this leader of, in effect, a way to deal with a desert or deal with a water-starved, rain-starved part of the world. But from reading the book, there were three big methods that they went about in terms of creating their water solutions. One was drip irrigation. Correct. The other is sort of wastewater treatment, used water. Yes. And that could be used for agriculture. And the third is desalinization. Right. So why don't you just explain to us the differences and what's the time series? When did, they, when did the first one happen? When did the second one happen? And the third. Yes. And where are they used for? Yeah. So 
Some of you may have, be of the, of the generation that remember the first prime minister of Israel talking about making the desert bloom. And to achieve that, he was talking, and, and I, I went through his diaries and found this, he spoke regularly about desalting the sea. That was the phrase he used, desalting the sea. And he thought that he needed to find a way to find a cheap method of taking Mediterranean seawater, taking the salt out of it, and, and, and bringing it to the society. Well, as a, as a result, even though the country was kind of broke, uh, 48, 49, 50, he starts already thinking about the fact we should start setting up government agencies to do this. And that, um, with lots of fits and starts, with lots of failures and lots of frustrations, he ends up succeeding. And the guy who now is in his early 90s, the guy who we appointed, a 20, then 26-year-old guy he appointed to handle this program for him, and his credential was he had just returned from the U.S. and got an MBA at NYU. That was his credential. He knew nothing about water. And he put him in, this fellow named Nathan Berkman, who I write about in the book, said that he actually didn't ever believe Ben-Gurion meant it. He thought that Ben-Gurion created this making the desert bloom thing and desalting the sea was just a fundraising technique when American Jews would come to visit Israel. And, but if you go into his diaries, it's proven that, I mean, assuming that he was writing those diaries for himself, for himself excuse me, um, he, um, he really believed it. So the first was, so desalination starts early, but it really doesn't come into its own really until the last 10 years, 15 years or so when they discover a whole bunch of new technologies that allows the, the cost of desalinated water to come way, way, way down to, just to give some order of magnitude, the very first desalination plant they build, uh, trying out one of the first technologies, and they had a series of five or six different technologies, all diff very different approaches to desalination. They were able to get 264 gallons of water, that's a cubic meter, that's about as much science as there is in the book. It's a cubic meter. And he was able to do that for 14, they were able to do that for about $14, which if you're comparing that to San Pellegrino, that's kind of cheap, but compared to like, what do you need for agriculture, that's really expensive. And they kept playing with it and fixing it and fixing it. And now in Israel, they're getting those same, in, in current adjusted dollars, they're now getting those same 264 gallons for about 42, 43 cents for that same amount of so water. So desalinization preceded drip irrigation? Well. As I say, it was a process. Drip irrigation starts in a completely crazy way. The man who was the water czar of Israel, a real virtuoso, a genius in water, uh, and, and he's the one who develops the initial plan for the government of Israel before it's even Israel, while still you know, the, the Zionist leadership in the 30s, in a, in a response to the British white paper banning, fun functionally banning immigration into Palestine. And after he, he, he ends up leaving government in a, in a fight with Ben-Gurion and another key elected official, Levi Eshkol, and he's sitting home, he's 59 years old, he now has nothing in the bank, he's a, he's a, he's, he has no future now because he's gotten into a ferocious fight with the two most important political figures in the country. He has, he's sitting in his two-room, not two-bedroom, two-room apartment in Tel Aviv, and suddenly he recalls, this is 1959, he suddenly recalls a moment about 30 years earlier when he had gone out to drill a well in what is now a big city, Hadera, then it was a farm town. And while the guys were setting up the rig, he notices a row of trees along the road, six, seven trees. And one of them, and it was the trees to sort of break the wind so that it doesn't disrupt the crops that they're growing. And one of the trees he notices is significantly taller than the others. And he thinks to himself, as he writes in his autobiography many years later, he thinks to himself, this is extraordinary. It's the same species of tree. It's the same soil. It's the same sunshine. Why is one taller than the others? And while the, they're still setting up the rig, he walks over and looks around the base of the tree and just sort of kicks the ground. And he has the good fortune of that one kick of finding a thin pipe that went from the farmer's house to the well. And just at that spot was a tiny pinhole leak. And he writes in his autobiography that it was like a mosquito buzzing in my ear. He says, it stayed with me all these years. And then he goes out, at the age of 59, he goes out trying to figure out a way to, if he could replicate this and turn this into a great What's innovation. His name? his name is Semcha Blas. And he, is, he, is, he, deser he deserves the Israel Prize for having figured out Israel's water destiny, but he deserves the Nobel Peace Prize for having figured out what will be the solution to our global food problems and our global So what problems. then happened? Well, then what happened? <laughs> what happened was he had some good fortune. He, he goes out and tries to sell the invention to a bunch of Israeli businessmen, and everyone turns him down. First of all, he's politically toxic, and it's a socialist country at that time still. He's politically toxic. But second of all is, it seems sort of like a dopey idea. I mean, everyone in the world at that time was flooding their fields. That's how you grow crops. Are you telling me a little dripper is going to work better than a whole flooded field? It's not being ridiculous. 
At that same moment, though, the Israeli kibbutz movement found themselves in an interesting historical moment. It's about 1960, 61, 62 now, and that first generation of great pioneers are starting to become old or older. They can't do the fieldwork anymore. And so they want to do something else that still makes them useful, and they start setting up kibbutz factories, socialist factories. And somebody says to one of these factories, one of these kibbutzim that's looking for something to do with their, with their lives, says, there's this guy Semcha Blas in Tel Aviv. He has this invention. Maybe you want to try buying it and see if it works. And the guy, his name is Uri Werber, who actually went up to meet Semcha Blas, who's ancient now. I, I met with him, spent five and a half hours with him. A lot of breaks, but it was just, <laughs> it was just, just, just fantastic. You or he? <laughs> <laughs> Too personal. Okay. <laughs> TMI, my kids would call that. Okay. So, so he says he knocks on Simcha Blas's door. They had made an arrangement for to come up. And Simcha Blas was a very nasty individual. Everyone I interviewed, including his children, said he was a very nasty person. <laughs> and Blas opens the door and, he's, and, and Werber says to him, do you know who I am? And Blas says to him, yes, you're the idiot from the kibbutz who thinks he's going to take my invention and make something of it. <laughs> so he says, that's right. So he starts to close the door. It's almost a cinematic. He starts to close the door. And Werber says to him, no, 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 I want to talk to you about your invention. I want to manufacture it. He says, what do you, and he's still on the doorstep. He says, what do you manufacture? He says, nothing. We, we grow crops in the desert. He says, well, you're not going to manufacture this either. He starts to close the door. He says, no, no, let me come in. And, and then from that, they talked. And, and because nobody else wanted it, he finally made a deal. Uh, Blas becomes very wealthy from this, as is Blas's son. And then, because Blas... This is part of the Blas personality. A few years later, he started accusing the same Uri Werber of having cheated him out of his well, great, you know, fortune. But I'm sure you had that experience in this a few times. <laughs> no, no, no. I didn't I'm already worried here. I mean, that, here I, I meant that Roger made somebody a great fortune, and that person then said to Roger, how dare you take a commission? That's all I meant, okay. I think. <laughs> Good. Sanford C. Bernstein and company. Okay. <laughs> Give us some idea of how prolific this was. So how many sort of acres was Israel growing then? Now it only had probably in 62, a million two, a million three people. Yeah, at about, uh, yeah, a little bit more than that. Yeah, just a little bit more, yeah. And then how many acres are today? Well, okay, I'm the, I don't know the, I don't actually know the acreage and that would be the toughest question I have now been asked on the tour. Uh, somebody, somebody actually asked me uh, earlier not today, but earlier in the tour, uh, how many kilowatt hours of energy are needed for desalination? Oh. And my unbelievable good luck was that I had just, just on the way into the talk, but handed a brochure about energy use and desalination, so I sounded like a genius. And this time I'm just like a fool. I have no idea. The answer is- It's more. The answer is less than today. Today is more. And what, but what, I'll tell you what was essential. When, in, from 1948 to 1952, something remarkable happens. And that is that Israel doubles in size. The idea that Israel will be an ingathering of the exiles, to use the Zionist phraseology, but as a home for Jews, whether they're from democratic states like America, England, or France, or whether they're from despotic nations like North Africa or, or Iraq or whatever, they're all, they're all coming in. They're coming in in droves. Holocaust survivors coming in in droves. And the country doubles in size. And Ben-Gurion and the other elites say that what we need to do is we need to do two things. We need to make sure they all have jobs, and at the same time, we don't want them to simply become shopkeepers and office, uh, office workers and so forth like they were back in Europe. And they use the phrase, the Hebrew phrase, that we came to build the land and we were rebuilt by it. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to take this whole generation of incoming uh, immigrants who were of the age where they could do it and turn them into farmers. And that's where desert uh, agriculture really begins. But to do that, you needed enormous amounts of water. And that also sets the, the you know, sort of the clock ticking for the, for the now Israeli leadership that they, they need to figure out a way to have large amounts of water if they're going to grow their own food, which for national security reasons, they decide that they must be self-sufficient because, you know, the Mediterranean could be blockaded and the rest of the states around them could stop them from getting a flow of food. So what's they decide they're going to have... What's happened to the rainfall in Israel? What, what's, that? what's happened to the amount of rainfall in Israel in the last 50 years? Well, this is, this is actually part of, the, uh, part of the, what makes it so fascinating. If you're talking about places with, with water crises or water problems, there are a number of huge trends or metrics that you look at. The three biggies, though, would be how much is the natural rain slash how much is your natural water? Second of all is how fast is your population growing? And third is how fast is your economy growing? So Israel really should be 
an, a water basket case because Israel, in terms of climate change, has suffered very badly. Their average annual rainfall has fallen by more than 25%, some years as much as 50%. Number two, as I mentioned earlier, that Israel doubled in size from 48 to 52, and from 48 till today, Israel has the fastest rate of population rise in the world, and its economy in that same period from 48 till today, other than Singapore and South Korea, has had the fastest GDP growth, 70-fold increase. So it, it, makes, it makes all the different trends all the more remarkable that at the same time, the Middle East itself is sinking deeper and deeper into water crises, that the one country in the Middle East that isn't suffering from all this is Israel. I mean, Jordan has water problems, and now they get water from Israel. The Palestinians get more than half of their water in the West Bank from Israel. In Gaza, even today, even when the rockets are flying, they get water from Israel. So Israel, Israel is like sort of the, set aside from everyone else from what they're doing, and, and it's because they've taken on these technologies. So how successful has Israel been in porting these, these technologies, bringing them to their neighbors and to countries a little further away? So the book is broken into, it's kind of like, roughly speaking, three thirds. The first third is sort of history, culture, society. What is it about the culture of, of the Israelis and the Zionists before they were Israelis? that allowed them to do what no one else in the world was doing, not in Eastern Europe, not in the Middle East, not in most of Asia. How was it that they were thinking 50 years out about their water needs and no one else was? What was it that they were doing? So I, I come to tell that story of how they did that. The second third is sort of in, in very much, again, in liberal arts terms, the technologies and, and what the mindset was about that technology. And the final third of the book is what your question drives at, which is what I refer to in the book as hydro-diplomacy. And Israel was, of course, I assume everyone in this audience knows, was very isolated diplomatically, almost from the get-go. And so they decided to use what they thought was one of their great tools, was their water smarts, as a tool to reach out into the world. So um, as early as the very, um, as early as the mid-1950s, Golda Meir becomes foreign minister of, of Israel. And among the first things she does is she reaches into sub-Saharan Africa. And what she reaches out to them with is two things. She's going to teach them about gender equality issues, and she's going to teach them about how to manage their water for both hygiene, you know, their sewage, for the drinking water for their homes, <clears throat> and for how to create proper irrigation for their fields. And it's a big success. And then they start reaching out in other countries as well. Well, I'll, if I can go on for just another moment or two, what's really remarkable, and never before written before my book, I, I discovered these in the interviews with these very old men and some women, mostly men, that they tell me these stories and my eyes popped. I, I'm here to talk to them about brackish water extraction and they're telling me suddenly this amazing story about how for nearly 20 years, Israel was in Iran running the Iranian water sector. And they did this as an outreach to create a friendly relationship with the Shah of Iran to sort of leapfrog over the hostile Arab states and to have this important Shiite Muslim country as if not a public friend, then a private friend. Or China. China made a deal with the Islamic Conference in the Arab states to honor the Arab boycott of Israel. But their water problems, which were very severe today, their water problems in the 70s grew terribly, terribly horrible. And they knew that Israel was a great source of water solutions. So in secret, they bring in teams of Israeli hydrologists into China to diagnose the problems and to figure out what are the Israeli solutions that they can use. And there's a whole sort of rigmarole story how they ship the good, they have to change the packaging, they have to change the labeling and ship through another country and all that. But ultimately, China decides that the value they were getting from having the Islamic Conference support at the UN was not worth not being able to be open with Israel about their water solutions. And because of water, because of hydro diplomacy, they come in. And to this day, to this day, the Palestinians, and as importantly, loads, uh, and I can't give the names, I'm not allowed to give the names, but loads of Islamic countries that you would think hate Israel from the behavior at the UN, actively, actively trade in the water technology space. I know the names of the companies, I know the names of the countries, I'm not allowed to say them in the book or here, but it's absolutely remarkable, and by the way, it does not include Iran, I just want you to know, but but other than that, it's, it's like it just about... It's just about, you would be surprised to how broad this is of Israeli businessmen and businesswomen carrying Israeli passports, flying into these states on a regular basis. And, and I think it's exciting. It's exciting because it could be a backdoor route to peace, and if not to peace, then certainly to coexistence and dialogue. So let's just go over the whole idea of water reuse, mm. water treatment. I have to make sure where this from. It says ultra-purified water. It says here on the label. What does that mean? <laughs> Nothing, can I, is, can I just have, like, nothing fresh is too water good here? for us speakers. Yeah, I tell you. 
you know, as you said, I'm a branding guy. This is, does everyone see this amazing branding opportunity? Look at this. New York Historical Society Museum and Library, ultra purified water. You should be, this is, this is like answer, a genius let's product. Let's answer the question. Go ahead. <laughs> I asked the big question. Water reuse. Yes. Explain okay. to what it is, explain the differences, let's say, you mentioned it in the book, between California and Israel. Yeah, oh, it's very correct. It's a great difference. Okay, so, so here, here's what everyone needs to know before you start gagging. Nobody is suggesting that anybody, you know, <laughs> uh, take their tap, uh, the toilet water and turn it into tap water. And this, uh, and talking about branding, there's a guy in California who tried to create a movement called the Toilet to Tap Movement. That's great. And, and I think that that guy, that guy really, uh, I wish I had competitors he, like him when needed, I was in the business he needed, world. He needed Beanstalk. <laughs> he needed Beanstalk, you're not kidding. So, so. But here's, here's what's great in the current world of science, which is that we have the capacity to take sewage, which could be, by the way, not just the stuff in your toilet, it's the stuff from your shower, your dishwasher, your washing machine, all that. And you can take it and we can purify that because of these technologies are the same technologies that we use for desalination, our reverse osmosis. We can purify it through biological means, through chemical means, through mechanical means, so that it is pure enough that if you wanted to, I'm not saying anyone here does, but if you wanted to, you could then drink it. So what Israel did, starting in 1952, you asked me before about the timeline, I think I missed that one. So in 1952, four-year-old country, still no money in the treasury, Israel makes the decision that they're going to spend as long as it takes to gather all of their sewage on a regular basis, daily basis, figure out a way to treat it, and then pump it to the northern Negev Desert, the western and, Neg and northern part of the Negev Desert, and that's where Israel really begins its desert farming in earnest. And there's a whole process, as you'd imagine, about safety of the water and safety of the aquifer below, because the drips might, you know, some bad stuff might drip in and all that. And they go through a large scientific process. And finally, after 30 years and billions of dollars spent building this parallel national water infrastructure, Israel is able to lead the world in capturing and reusing 86% of its sewage for a secondary purpose. And just think about this. You flush the toilet in Tel Aviv, the water gets purified, takes a while, it goes down to this pipeline, down to the Negev, it grows a tomato, the tomato comes back to Tel Aviv, you eat the tomato, depending upon your age, it's enough either 15 minutes later or an hour and a half later, and then it's like, an, it's like it's a violation of Newtonian physics or something like that. It's an endless loop where, where nothing ever is wasted. It's incredible. Anyway, compared to the United States, the United States, Israel's 86%, the next highest country of reuse is Spain at 17%. The United States, depending upon which of three trade associations you believe, is either 2%, 5%, or 7% of, of, of treated sewage reuse. And if you think about the dry lands like Arizona or Nevada or California, it's just outrageous that California uses fresh water to irrigate golf courses. And it uses fresh water to grow cotton or hemp. And I mean, that kind of hemp, I mean, industrial hemp. And, and how extraordinarily stupid and crazy it is, even if you don't want to use it for tomatoes, there are so many uses for it. And, they, and what they do, just to really make you, your head explode on stupidity, and um, I hope my next book will address this issue. By the way, my editor, Marsha Marklin, is here in the back. I could not have dreamed of having been more lucky uh, a first-time writer finding an, uh, an editor at St. Martin's Press, Thomas Sun Books, and Marsha Markland. Thank you, Marsha. But, 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 but think about how insane this is. Like in Los Angeles, the second largest metropolis in the country, and I think actually, having been in LA a few times, they actually produce more sewage per capita, I think, than most of the rest of us. <laughs> but, but they produce the sewage under the Clean Water Act. They treat it to this ultra-high level of purity, and then they use yet more carbon fuels to then pump it into the Pacific Ocean. Well, how does that make any sense? It doesn't. So let me just ask the question this way. Okay. On the eastern seaboard, it doesn't seem like the United States has any big troubles in terms of... Wrong right? you are, buddy. Okay. Well, let's, let me, you'll come back. You'll correct me in a minute. Okay. But in California and through the desert, the western desert, there really is a water shortage Huge. of a real crisis proportions. Yes. Now, given that there isn't a secret any longer about how successful Israel has been, and that Israel has almost solved the rain problem, it, isn't, it probably still is dependent in some way on rain, but Margin not nearly. Marginally. Right, which is this miracle considering how many people there are today. Yeah. How is it possible 
that California hasn't picked these things up and continues to go along on the process it has of almost getting eventually into a, a crisis they almost can't get out of. So first of all, part of your the, the part of the uh, assumption of your question is correct, and part of it is incorrect. So, the the part that's not correct is that in fact California understands that it has a crisis, and California and Colorado, where I was just a few weeks ago, I was speaking on a on a panel with the governor there, and, and California and Colorado and Nevada and Arizona, they understand they have a problem, and 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 in each and every one of those cases and many others, they have reached out to Israel. Israel and California have a formal memorandum of understanding, which um, binds the two together to figure out from a government to government, business to business, an academic to academic way of figuring out California's problems with Israeli solutions. Something similar in Colorado, something similar in Nevada, something not quite as good in Arizona. So they are reaching out to Israel. California, in response to the drought, has been elevating the amount of drip irrigated fields that they, are, that they have. But the problem is, that there is a crazy and perverse incentive, and we must fix this, for water use, particularly in the Western states, which is that it's sort of like if you've ever worked in a corporation, you're getting to late in the year in December, and if you don't waste some, if you, you know, if you, if you haven't used up all of your budget, you're worried that next year they're gonna cut you on your budget, right? You're smiling, you had that experience. So, so what he does, you just come up with bogus projects, he starts, you know, wasting money. Well, similar thing happens with water out west. Farmers and other users, do not want to find themselves with less the following year. So they are actually perversely incentivized to waste water. I don't mean wastewater, I mean to make poor utilization of water. And then, therefore, they have no incentive since they get their water for free because of historic rights. And I, I can get into that a little bit, but there's a historic, if your great-great-grandfather had a claim to that water, then so do you, it turns out. It's passed, it's a hereditary right that's passed down. And because of bad market rules, you can't sell those that water. So it's either wasted or run the risk of not getting that water next year. So farmers waste it. They don't. And, and if the choice is free water or thousand dollars an acre for drip irrigation equipment, which normally would be easy because normally water should be more than thousand an acre, then you make the decision of well, I'll just waste the water. What do we need? California is one of the most regulated states in the union. You would think, right? About almost everything. But not about their water but not about their water because the farm lobby is strong and because of other users are strong. And in fact, groundwater, aquifer water, which is something that New Yorkers don't really think about much, I suspect, but there's surface water, it's rivers and lakes and streams, and there's groundwater, the stuff that's pumped up from underneath. Until, until about four months ago, California had never regulated groundwater. So it'd be like an arms race from one farmer to the next farmer who could pump lower down and suck more water out of the aquifer faster. And the result of which, by the way, is another phenomenon called subsidence, where the earth above it, because the water molecules were all being sucked out, and now the earth is collapsing. It's causing billions of dollars of infrastructure damage to California infrastructure and other places in the country. So before we get into opening this up, one of the more interesting observations you have in the book is how much water is wasted. Hmm which is actually hard to fathom. So give us some relative to understanding of what happens not only in New York or and around the country, but around the world. So we don't think about it, and we don't ask our public officials to think about it. You know, if we, if we have a moment to talk to our mayor, we'll talk about homeless people or a park or a school or a tax cut. But none of us, except for ultra nerds like me, uh, you know, would think to talk about water and pipes and pumps and things like that. But in reality, if you want to fix climate change, one of the best things you could do is you could fix your water infrastructure. Talk about a shovel-ready project. Fixing our water infrastructure would be a great one to do. Um, around the world, some cities, Jakarta leads the world in this dubious distinction, loses 65% of its water to leaks. I was in Louisiana last week. I spoke in Baton Rouge and New Orleans last week. New Orleans leads the U.S., another dubious distinction. 60% of their water that goes to their pipes gets lost from the time that it gets cleaned and prepared and all that, and they're ready to pump it into the house, and 60% of that water gets lost. A huge climate change, if you care about climate change and carbon fuel usage, a huge problem. But domestically, around the United States, the guess is that around 25 to 30% of our water gets lost. And if I can share one horrific story. In 1980, uh, New York City discovered that on one of the three great aquifers that was feeding New York, there was a large a pipe, probably about as large as this stage. They discovered that there was a crack in this pipe. 
1980. You have to remember the date. 1980. And they discovered the pipe had a crack in it. And the crack, although it was still enough flow that water was going through it, they discovered that every single day, 35 million gallons were being lost. So, of course, everyone jumped on it right away because you can't dare have 35 million gallons lost, right? So I feel like it's one of those 1930s movies where the calendar's flipping now. 1988, 1983, 1985, right? 1990, 1991, Every single day, 35 million gallons were lost. And the reason for that is because we think of water as free and capital projects cost money. If you had a price for water, which is probably, other than culture, the second greatest determinant of whether you're going to have a good water society or a bad water society, and Israel charges for its water, if you, had, if you had a price for water, we would then balance it and say, 35 million gallons a day for a lot of years, or fix it now. And I suspect we would have a much better water profile. Farmers would use their water more efficiently. Cities would repair their leaks, as Israel has done. And, and, uh, and everybody would have a much more happy water future, even if we go into a drying period. So outside of this leak, we should expect New York state, city, to experience water shortages like what is being experienced in the West? Well, it's a different thing. We have lots and lots of natural water here. But for example, last year, New Jersey, there are three levels of drought alert. Uh, last year, New Jersey was put in level one drought advisory. And another thing, last Friday morning, I spoke in Providence, Rhode Island, to the Department of Environmental Protection, or whatever their name, it's a similar name, it's not that exact name, and um, the Department of Environmental Management. And uh, because it's a blue state, they want to call it DEM, Department of Environmental Management. So, so, uh, so, so I, I spoke there, and it's not such a big state, but the northern half of the state is water rich, and the southern half of the state is actually water poor. And they recognize that by fixing infrastructure, by asking their farmers to use drip irrigation, by possibly treating sewage to use it for golf courses and things like that, they, they could fix their water profile. I don't think they need desalination, but I would argue that New York City, in case of a terror attack on our water lines and all that, for a couple hundred million dollars, which you could amortize over 40 years of the life, useful life of the facility, I would argue that I would like to have a desalination facility at hand in, in Battery Park. So have any politicians actually come to you, recognized what you've done, and tried to adopt some set of policies that you think could be? Yes, I've, I've actually been a little bit lucky in that, that I've had, a, a, without any names, I've been approached by a bunch of senators and a, a, more than a handful of congresspeople who are concerned about this issue and have asked me to get involved. I've been approached by, I've spoken at the World Bank now, I've spoken at uh, other significant venues where people are concerned about this issue and wonder what they can do about it. But I will say, again, with no names, that I approached one Democratic campaign and one Republican campaign, because I had friends working in each. And I said, how about if I help you put together a water advisory board? This is an important issue. It's going to grow more important. And as if they had coordinated with each other, which of course they didn't, their answer was, you know, nobody is pressing us about water issues. What do we need to create problems for? You know, so thank you, but, and these are friends of mine, so it's like, it's not like they were like blowing me off. It's, it's like, what do we need it for? So we're gonna, we're gonna just create problems for ourselves. We're either gonna alienate farmers or environmentalists or, so what do we need it for? Okay, guys, it's your turn. We have people, we have microphones here on the left or the right. Just please, um, why don't we start? Thank you very much for that very interesting presentation and interview. And my question is, on the Middle East global market, how is this going to change the political game? Like, we're going to be soon arguing over water the way we have been arguing over oil. And why can't they use oil, water as part of the peace process to negotiate? Yeah, I'm actually very optimistic. I say this in my book. I have a fairly long chapter about the Palestinians and the Jordanians, and I had earlier written chapters about Syria, Egypt, and Lebanon, and to the disappointment of my editor who wanted to keep them in, I thought the book felt like it was reading too long, and I wanted everyone to be able to read it in three sittings or four sittings if you're a slow reader, and, uh, and I decided to cut those chapters. So there's a bootleg version of them somewhere, I'm sure, that someone, someone will be able to get them to you. So I'm actually, um, I'm actually uh, fairly optimistic about the role that water can play in fixing uh, issues of war and peace. Um, there is 
really grave and growing problems in the entire Middle East. Yemen is on the verge of running out of water in their capital city, about four million people. Within, no more than another two or three years, they are going to face a catastrophic situation of being out of water. Um, um, Iran has 84, 85 million people. There's an Iranian government report that I got my hands on. I had to translate it from Farsi into English, and I was able to include it in the book, uh, which talks about how they fear that within 15 years, they're going to have to relocate 50 million people out of 84 million people because they'll be out of water. And these are, these are grave humanitarian problems. So I think that either people will be turning to Israel for solutions again, or this will lead to upheaval in, in governments that will either lead to failed states or new opportunities, but that for Israel's closest neighbors, the Palestinians to be sure, the Jordanians to be sure, and the people in South Syria to be sure, Israel is going to be a very, very good um, uh, insurance policy for what's going to be bad days coming because Israel has the capacity to grow, grow its water supply. I just, just to make clear in numbers, is the reason why Israel is so water rich, the reason why it's a water superpower is not just its technologies, which are fabulous, and its mindset, which is great, and all that stuff. It's that if you made a pie chart, 62% of Israel's water is artificial or manufactured water. It comes from desalination, wastewater reuse, uh, brackish water reuse, rain capture, and other technologies like that. So that's why Israel has so much. If Israel relied on its natural rain and just sort of conservation-mindedness, it would be in the same dire straits that all of its neighbors are. So, so I actually think it's going to be a game changer and cause opportunities for more engagement and more opportunity for, for peaceableness. Yes, sir. And, and, and just say, and, and the Dead Sea, there's a section in the, my book about this, the Dead Sea, which has been shrinking, is a brilliant Israeli idea to coordinate Israel, Jordan, and the Palestinians in a plan to revive the Dead Sea, but also for Israel to provide a lot of water to Amman, Jordan. And then that would, and geopolitically, it would keep, if God forbid the king of Jordan were to fall and ISIS or brother, Muslim brother were to take over, it creates an opportunity for Israel to say whoever the bad guy is who takes over, you know, you may hate us, you may want to change the rules of the game, but you still need a third of your water for Amman, Jordan, and we're supplying it, so. And they can say no water, right? Well, it could be. Yes, sir. It's, first of all, it's a fascinating subject, thank you. My question deals with Long Island. Long Island is fed by an aquifer, and it, and it population continues to grow. They're towards the tail end of that aquifer. Where do they get water from when that runs out? Yeah. Um, you know, um, can I just turn to my wife for a second and say something? We just bought a house in, uh, <laughs> in Suffolk County. So, um, and we debated about it for about 25 years of our marriage, whether to do it or not. So you, you happen to be right. Around the time of the closing, I started saying, hmm, I'm supposedly a water expert. So let me figure out. You're totally right. Under, under Long, anybody here have a home in Long Island by any chance? Well, I have a broker for you. Okay. So, uh, so, <laughs> so, so here's the story. Here's the problem. The problem is that Long Island Long Skinny Island has this long, thin aquifer, and it has been severely overpumped. Problem number one. Problem number two is that it has uh, there's been lots of fertilizer dumped on green lawns and farm fields there, and so a lot of that nitrogen and phosphate has leached into the aquifer. That's problem number two. The good news is that these are totally solvable problems. It just requires some focus and some will. And even without you know, a robust additional amount of rainfall, these are fixable problems, either through desalination or through wastewater reuse, and most particularly through enhanced agricultural techniques. So, so I, I think that, um, you know, I have a phrase in the book that I use, uh, which is that water problems are a proxy for bad governance. And I think that wherever you see water problems, whether it's Flint, Michigan, or perhaps someday on Long Island, it'll be because whoever it was didn't get, get ahead of it. Water problems don't tend to just sort of like suddenly say, oh my God, where did this come from? You know, even that water main that breaks, there was plenty of notice. There was plenty of notice about Flint. And, and there's plenty of notice and plenty of time to fix Long Island. Uh, and we just have to make sure that our, our politicians and elected officials otherwise uh, focus on that. Thank you. Yes, sir. Yeah, um, <clears throat> you gave an interview to Oh, sorry. You gave an interview to the Hebrew University, uh, the American Friends of Hebrew University, and I'm paraphrasing, Could but be. basically you said that uh, the water relationship between Israelis and Palestinians can create conditions uh, if the parties want for dialogue. I'm sorry, could you speak a little into the microphone? I'm just having trouble. Sorry. Um, you gave an interview to the American Friends of the Hebrew University uh, yeah. recently, and you said, I'm paraphrasing, but the water relationship between Israelis and Palestinians can create... Uh, uh, conditions for dialogue. 
Um, but I'm wondering, how can the parties have an honest dialogue about resource sharing long-term peace if the state of Israel continues using a disproportionate amount of West Bank water for its own population, while Palestinians in the West Bank continue to go without enough? Um, okay, so first of all, let me make clear to everybody here. Even though I am a lawyer, uh, I am not Israel's defense attorney, and I'm also definitely not a uh, member of the Israel Foreign Ministry. So, uh, so I feel comfortable criticizing Israel as I do here and there in the book. But I will say that um, the premise of your question is, is ignoring any kind of historical sense. And I don't mean to insult you by saying that, but I would urge you, and I'll give you my card and we can dialogue or email each other. <clears throat> I'd, I'd love, <clears throat> I'd love I'd, but what, what everyone should know is, and I, I hear this every so often, it's just, it, it's, it's a talking point that is false. And the reason why it's false is that in 1995, the Palestinians and the Israelis entered into an agreement called the Oslo II Agreement, which specifically identified who's getting what, <clears throat> of which aquifer, and in what quantities. And one second, let me just finish, let me just finish. And, and just, just, I promise you, you, I will give you all the time you want, but probably not right now. And, and, and then, and they entered into an agreement that, that that how the water gets split. And the way it works is the Palestinians get the first taste out of that water, so that if the water falls below a certain level, the Palestinians get their share before the Israelis get their share. And in years of drought, that has meant <clears throat> that Israeli farmers have had to take less water, yet the Palestinians have remained constant. But not only that, over the years, as the Palestinian population has grown, Israel has made the choice to increase the amount of water that they provide to the Palestinians. Now, I'm not gonna suggest that all the issues between the Palestinians and Israelis are perfect by any means, but in terms of water, again, you can read the chapter and agree with it, disagree with it, but I came away, as, came away with it completely, uh, completely convinced of the fact that the, what's holding the Palestinians back in water is their goal of politicizing water to try to have a club with which to strike Israel and international organizations and not because of the fact that there isn't plenty of water the Palestinians to have, and I can go on and on about this, but I won't. But but I feel strongly quite yes, sir. about it. <coughs> you can clap. I haven't even asked my question yet. Yeah. Um, uh, you uh, mentioned uh, Israel working with China. I'm wondering, in terms of your thought about these geopolitical aspects with China and um, the control of like the headwaters of, of major rivers through Tibet. Do you kind of project in the future in terms of these kind of geopolitical issues and does it come out as a technological solution so that India and China and other countries in that region have enough water or does it become, you know, one country really uh, walling it off for themselves? You've identified um, very much so why I am so frightened about the future if we don't get this right. We are talking about some of the densest population areas in the world. India, China, Pakistan, parts of the world that are politically fragile, many of them. And we're talking about hundreds of millions of people at risk if we don't get this right. The Himalayas are not producing the same kind of water flow as it was previously. Pakistan is a great risk. China is a great risk. India is a great risk. Lots of countries are at great risk right now. And I think that this is all the more reason why that we need really to start thinking about water in a different way. I, I, if, I, if, I, if I may, I, I don't mean to go get silly on a, a very serious topic. When my book came out, uh, first time author, you know, I'm not my 30s, I'm an older guy now, and it's like sort of, wow, I have a book out, wow. So I live here on the Upper West Side, so after a week or two or three, I walk over to Barnes & Noble, and I'm lying, the same day. Okay, so I walk, <laughs> I walk over to Barnes & Noble, and I wanna see, where's the book? So it's, it's, <laughs> It's shelved. I go to the guy, Seth M. Siegel. He has a new book out. I hear it's really great. Uh, Let there be water. Uh, do you know where it is by any chance? And he says, um, yeah. He says, it's upstairs in the back in the wildlife section. <laughs> and I know the book pretty well because I actually wrote it. And, and um, the only reference to wildlife is that there's a river in Israel where there's a sardine that had gone extinct that now is back. That's it. One sentence, maybe two. And... It struck me very forcefully right then and there that what we need is not just for the million, hundreds of millions of people, what we need is for a change of thinking. We need a section, I mean this metaphorically, we need a section in bookstores, we need a section in the newspaper, we need a section in our mind share where we're thinking about water. We wake up in the morning thinking about energy. I mean, you go through the business section or, the, or the, last week on Thursday, front page banner headline of the Wall Street Journal was about oil prices. 
There's never a front page story about water. And we need to have that mentality change so that U.S. foreign policy and foreign governments taking the American lead start thinking about water in a completely different way and not like, well, God will provide or not my problem or it's 20 years from now. So if, if I might ask, though, I mean, just specific, it, it just in terms of China, though, because they have both the military power and controlling this oh, sources of water. And so do you think they're going to take the Israeli route and say, with technology, we're going to foster diplomacy there or... No, we're going to wall this off because it's China first, well, it's the I, South China Seas. So. Look, I, I don't know, but I will say that in terms of what we call virtual water, it's not by accident that China, which, uh, uh, again, this is more the subject of my next book, but the, but the, 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 I can respond because I've been thinking about this and now writing about this, is that China really is the great new neocolonialist power in the world. And they're going all over Africa and they're buying up massive amounts of crop production and they're doing that because they're out of water. And, and, and so the fruits and vegetables, industrial crops, the commodity crops that are coming out of Africa and Asia that they're buying up, and now the United States, that they're buying and bringing over, is in a sense them importing water from around the world. I don't know if they need to invade countries to take the headwaters or not, which is what the implication of your question is. I, I don't know enough about that world. But it's, it's not an impossibility. It's not an impossibility that the wars of the 21st century will be fought over water. But the Israeli model is the opposite that the wars of the 21st century don't need to be fought over water because conflicts can be instead, water can be instead of, instead of a source of conflict, short, a source of conflict resolution. Short answers, two more questions. I'm ready, baby. Israel has uh, developed all this and Israel is going around showing everybody how they've done it and how they, and, and now how, I guess even Iran with the Shah and all the rest, when Israel has given out all this information, is Israel still needed in each project? Does it, if Israel puts together a whole batch of information, can't California, China, whatever else, just do it without Israelis? Or there are well, well, Israeli technology and I, I have two short answers to that. First answer is that uh, you know smart people tend to usually have at least one more good idea up their sleeve. And Israel has been innovating in technology and medical devices and all that for a long time. As you know, as adoption is now better adoption, and I would think that. But the second thing I would say is that one of the great Zionist imperatives was not that just they, they would build a homeland and not just a homeland where Jews from all over the world could settle, but that that homeland would be, to use the words of Isaiah chapter 49, a light unto the nations. And I think that it's a fulfillment of the Israeli dream, actually by being able to share this around the world. And if everybody has more security and a better water future, that's a pretty good outcome for Israel too, I would say. Yes, sir, last question. It was my understanding that Israel was, uh, many, many years ago, was very instrumental in turning the Imperial Valley into the most fertile uh, growing land in the world. Uh, is that true? Well, number yeah. one, and number two, yeah. if you remember your conflicts of law, uh, the Western states were almost always almost at wars uh, in a, the early days over water. Well, let, let me just actually, let me, rather than go into a sort of historical legal issue of the second question, if I may, let me just say that um, your premise is largely correct, but it's similar to Roger's question about California, about the Imperial Valley in California. And, and, that, and that is that... Um, the high value crops like almonds and pistachios and avocados and wine grapes in particular are now, if not universally using drip irrigation, then it's a very, very high adoption level. The problem is in what are called commodity crops, alfalfa, cotton, uh, um, silage for farm animals and so forth. And those tend to still be irrigated using flood irrigation. And so the challenge is, you're right, the high value add of the Imperial Valley, of the San Joaquin Valley, and places like that, no doubt about it, are now high level of adoption of Israeli technology, no doubt about it. But I thought that the, went but back the to the, the, the early the 60s. But, so, but the, uh, it wasn't in the 60s, it started in 72. They, 72. In Fre uh, the first products were sold in Fresno in 72, and then 73 it started to explode. And by the late 70s it was everywhere in that. But, but the real challenge is about, you know, America feeds the world from what's a place that probably few of you know, but I hope soon everyone will know because we'll expand our water awareness, called the Ogallala 
aquifer, which is eight states large, starts in the north and South Dakota and the west and Wyoming and goes all the way south to Texas. It's massive, it's continental. And we are shamefully drawing it down very quickly to grow crops, to feed animals all over the world. We are not growing it intelligently. We're flood irrigating those fields and we are wasting and destroying our children's future and the food that we will need to eat 25 years from now. We need to fix this. It took, it took, it took 25,000 years to fill the Ogallala Aquifer and we started pumping it in 1950 and it's now two thirds empty. So it's something we have to fix. But here's the good news. I don't wanna leave you on a bad note. Last sentence. The great news about Israel is, the great news about the book is that we have no reason to be pessimistic. Everything Israel did, we can do. We are richer, we're as smart as they are, we have great educational institutions, we have brilliant business people, we can do it all. And what Israel did, we can do, we have to do it, we just have to get started. Thank the lady you so with much. the hook is here. Good evening. Good evening, everyone. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs. Roger Hertog, Seth Siegel, this was a fascinating evening. Thank you, Roger, for bringing Seth to us tonight. I just want to remind you, Seth Siegel will be signing books on the Central Park west side of our building, our museum store. Um, will be You can purchase books there. And as always, we thank you all for coming. We love having you. Keep coming back. And um, tomorrow night, another program on the Mideast. Come back tomorrow night. Thank you. Okay, bye.